I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. This week, the French Stock Exchange became bigger than the London Stock Exchange. So bonjour, everyone, and welcome to the Playing Euronext uh, podcast. Just we, Steve W, and just we here avec Steve D and Paul. Um, Steve, uh, comment was your week or something like that? Je m'appelle Steve, ou de la They're about as much as I know. I actually know they're in song form, but no, no, I'm not doing it. Um, my, my week was uh, pretty good. I think it's uh, it's been a bit of a red week. I had a decent Monday, but I think it's been red since then. I got caught in traffic today. I had a half an hour drive to go and measure something up for somebody, and it took me four hours to get there because there was a crash. And then on the way back, I obviously avoided all the crashes because I knew other side of the road and there was best water main so i was going half an hour away and half an hour back and i got into work for the last hour of the day so yeah i've had a just a day sat in the car how about you guys yeah that's pretty good i i've i've um what can i say uh stocks wise i, I think things are going okay this is we've definitely seen that bit of a pullback haven't we uh based on the new uh interest rate data that came out today i think so i think i, I was i was like so close to uh, going green again on my portfolio. I think I was 0.2% in the, in the negative, but now we're back down to 3% or so in the negative. So um, it's, it's, it's gone okay. It's just, uh, it's where I expect to be. I expect this to go much lower. And I think the rally that was of last week may just be a figment of our imagination soon. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, um, pretty good. Uh, I can't tell you too much about what I'm doing here, but I went cliff jumping yesterday that was an experience <laughs> jumping into water uh so yeah uh that's that's been my life recently uh what you've been doing steve uh well so steve has been avoiding crashes and paul has been dropping quite sharply which i guess is an interesting metaphor for um <laughs> stock market behavior i've spent most of my weekend um hemorrhaging it on the bog to be honest with you because uh that's kind of roughly how my portfolio is going as well i got food poisoning on friday and that was not much fun if i'm honest with you i had a uh, <laughs> A rough weekend, and my portfolio's broadly done the same thing as yours, actually, uh, Paul, in that it sort of thought about heading towards the kind of level point. Um, this is with quite a bit of help from probably foreign exchange on the way and so on, right? But um, mm -hmm. it got up there. It's, it's tailed away a little bit today, but um, it means I'm just slightly lower this week uh, than I was a week ago, but there's so much happening at the moment. There's far more important things to worry about than my portfolio right now. Yeah. yeah. Today we've had possibly one of the stinkiest, um, autumn statements that I've definitely, uh, definitely that I've seen. I mean, we, we joke on the discord, um, with ISA investor, um, that, when Osborne used to do a statement, you used to sort of come out of it with a few sort of dings here and there, and you know you're, you maybe were missing an arm or some fingers or something. But uh, this one seems to be uh, seems to be uh, well a lot worse. Um, I've got the rundown for you guys here, Paul. I don't know if you'll have heard it, so this might be news to you. 
Um, so just a quick summary of the top line. The OBR, uh, Office for Budget Responsibility, their forecasting inflation is going to be 9.1% by the end of 2022. And it's going to be 7.5% by 2023. Uh, unemployment is at 3.6% today. They think that's going to raise to just under 4.9% in 2024. So here's where we got stung. Tax, top rate of tax is going to be lowered from 150,000 to 125,140. Uh, all personal tax thresholds are now going to be frozen until 2028. So that's actually a real terms tax cut. If inflation's at 10% um, and your tax thresholds are not going up 10%, then that means that uh, you're going to essentially get taxed more. Um, dividend allowance shout cut. Out to, sorry, shout out to uh, who was it in the group in the discord today who was running a little exercise on how much we might be behind i know it wasn't completely accurate but it was a pretty good exercise to do to show how so um, shout out in that case i'll pick up from here then shout out to Stubads who was um <laughs> yeah. taking oh, the personal allowance now and basically working that down for inflation along with yeah. the kind of threshold at which you start paying um uh, basic tax and then uh, i think higher level tax and there was some other stuff in his spreadsheet as well that i mm. haven't yet kind of got around to looking at i was trying to work out what was going on there obviously he's kind of estimating a little bit there with um uh inflation where inflation will be in the next sort of five years or so but that gives you a feel for what you'll be able to kind of keep in real terms i guess if they stay fixed for as long as they're planning to which i may not yeah, like a change of government it was just really good to point out that it was a it, it was a tax you know, it is a tax hike if if you stay around till 2028. It's quite interesting way of looking at things. Uh, okay, so dividend allowance has been cut from £2,000 uh, to £1,000 in April next year, and April the following year it's going to be cut again to 500 so it's getting quartered. Uh, capital gains tax is following suit, going from 12300 to 6000 and down to 3000 in 2024. Uh, electric vehicles are no longer exempt from zero-rated VED, so that means you'll start paying tax on your electric vehicles. And stamp duty cuts announced in uh, the mini-budget are going to remain until March 2025. So they offered... The following on the cost of living support. Energy price cap is going to remain £2,500 until April, then a new cap of 3000 until March 2024. Uh, additional payments of 900 quid will be paid to those on means-tested benefits, £300 to pension households, and 150 to those on disability benefits. Social rent increases are going to be capped at 7% rather than the 10.1% that they were going to be uh, going to increase by. Uh, national minimum wage increased to £10.42 from April 2023. Benefits to increase by inflation 10.1, as is pension credit, and the triple lock is to remain. Just for those who don't know, triple lock is basically the state pension has a triple lock um, rule, which means that uh, the state pension must rise each year in line with the highest of these three possible figures. So it'll be inflation, average earnings, or 2.5%. So obviously with inflation being at 10.1, they're in for a hefty raise. Anything in there jumping out at you guys before I move on to business tax? You want to talk about dividends and talk about dividend uh, cuts? That that probably affects some of us more than others. Obviously, most of dividends from stocks, I think, uh, stung on dividend tax now. They thought it was mainly from the stocks. And no, we mostly, I think most of us have our stocks in a tax-safe ISA, so we don't actually get charged any tax this side on our dividends. But I think... Me, in particular, I've now switched myself to a self-employed basis, and that allows me to take dividends out of my limited liability company. And uh, that has so far been a very helpful tax um, 
uh, way way of getting around uh, paying a little bit more tax. And most people do this, and I think the government has known this for a long time. I think Steve gets a quite a nice dividend as well. Um, it's probably not going to make too much of a difference to you, but I'm certainly going to change the structure of my company now uh, to maybe still take it because the dividend tax isn't that high. It's about 8.75% if you're on the basic rate, um, which I am. And so it, it still will be tax efficient for me to take out dividends out of a, uh, out of a company for myself. But um, yeah, in general, it's not going to affect anyone with their stocks. But maybe if you're a self-employed person, it could affect you a lot more tax-wise. Yeah, just to quickly explain how that works for people. So the first £2,000 of your dividend was, was completely free of tax. And then if you got more of that, it then basically gets tacked onto your income. So say, for instance, you use up 35000 of your allowance in salary, you get your first 2000 free, you get a 15000 dividend. That's essentially like adding 13000 on top of your salary. So it would then be taxed at 8.75 until you hit the next band and then it would move to a, a, a different taxable rate. Um, so that basically that 2000 is being reduced to 1000 and then to 500 It's long been a way for people to get around um, paying national insurance and things like that um, for, for quite a long period of time. So that that's a that's a fair thing to swap unfortunately that's going to hurt me a lot but steve do you have anything or do you want me to shuffle on you were lumping the nhs under business tax stuff or uh, there's, yeah there's loads more coming <laughs> okay mate i'll let you carry on then in that case i sort of had more holistic views on this stuff rather than individual bits okay so business tax vat threshold is frozen until march 2026 uh they're going to implement reforms on taxes to big tech companies although they've been saying this for 12 years and i've yet to see it uh windfall taxes uh energy industry is going to be hit with an expanded windfall tax uh, of 35% up from 25% from the 1st of January until March 2028. Also a temporary 45% levy on electricity generators. Uh, so there was a bit of spending announcement as well to go with these uh, these new tax rises. So um, How do you guys feel about windfall tax? What do you feel about it? Uh, if we're pausing on this one, I um, for me, they were the straw that broke the camel's back for me with Boris Johnson because uh, he did many things that many, many people found objectionable. But to my mind, the kind of windfall tax was something that he didn't even think was a good idea. Uh, was only interested in it because he thought it would be a vote winner. And I didn't actually think it was that clever. I'm still not convinced I think it's that clever, but I think there's an awful lot of noise around this. So as I understand it, Shell are currently forecast to pay nothing in windfall tax this year because all of the stuff that would be taxable for them is offset by North Sea oil investments, which uh, they can use against this. So increasing it from 25% to 35%, I fail to see how that makes a difference to a number that's currently zero. Uh, the boss of Shell, as I understand it, was sounding off um, saying that uh, he really felt that Shell ought to be uh, paying a windfall tax, which um, I made me kind of vaguely cross on this because if you really think, if you're any business, whether you're Shell or anybody yeah. else, and you think you ought to be paying tax, there is a facility for you to just send that to the Treasury. Uh, there is a place you can send any tax that you're supposed to send to. You don't have to wait until they come and take it off you. Um, so I had no real time for that particular line. Steve? Well, I was just going to say, he's there for you, remember? So as a shareholder of Shell, mm -hmm. he, he's there to represent you. So if he started voluntarily sending off tax... Uh, to the Treasury, the likelihood is that he would lose his job. I think what he meant is, look, I'm happy to pay a tax. Give me, give me the, the you know, 
implement the way for me to need to pay the tax and I will pay the tax but I won't voluntarily give you it because I'm here to represent the shareholders and I quite like getting paid all of this money to sit here um, so yeah he was never going to voluntarily pay the tax but I, I do agree with him he's asking to pay the tax just implement a way for him to pay the tax do you think it's a bit of a PR though I thought it was a bit of a PR sort of way he knows he doesn't have to pay the tax and a lot of the general public who probably don't understand the situation very well uh, would think evil oil companies should be paying more tax because they're making so much money off the pump, right? What and obviously it's a bit more delicate than that, isn't it? Because through the pandemic, they lost a lot of money. The shareholders of Shell lost a lot of money. So it is a bit more delicate than that. And depending on whether you like enjoy being a shareholder or if you're a member of the public who's getting screwed at the gas pump, um, it, it, I think it is a bit more delicate. But he knows he doesn't have to pay tax. So to save face with the public and not be the evil shell, he goes, yeah, we should be paying the windfall tax, knowing but, full well he's not going to pay any tax this year. Yeah, but it's 100% blame passing, but at the end of the day, yeah. the fault of not paying tax on this is family at the Conservatives' door. He's going to pay the tax. If you implement the system to make him pay the tax, he'll pay it. You don't implement it, he won't pay it. They didn't implement it, so he ain't going to pay it. Yeah. I don't mind a system that kind of allows you to offset your tax by making investments in the UK, especially if, look, this is nebulously supposed to be a kind of growth um, thing uh, statement. I, I'm not going to kind of foreshadow Steve's stuff too much, but I really didn't see much of that. Um, I don't mind the idea that a way of encouraging people to, to invest in growth projects is to tax them if they don't uh, or something like that, especially if it's a big oil company or something along those lines. One of the things I become slightly wary of with these things is partly Paul's thought of um, when you're in trouble, we're not going to help you. But if you do well, oh, we'll have the excess. Thanks. You're not allowed to do well in this situation. I worry about the message that sends from the UK uh, because, OK, it's all fine when it's oil companies because no one likes oil companies. Right. Um, but I do worry about what that will mean for other businesses when they fall out of fashion or out of favour and so point. on. And they tend to think to themselves, OK, look, directly you don't like us. So you're going to start randomly windfall taxing us as well, are you, in that mm. case? Maybe I won't bring my business to the UK in that case if that's yeah. what's likely to happen. Yeah, it, very, very interesting point, that is. It's key to remember Shell's not in anyone's good books anyway because they've, do they've got rid of the Royal Dutch bit. They've got rid of the bit where they were also registered in Holland. And the reason they got rid of that is, and they will never tell you this, is because they didn't like paying the Dutch withholding tax on all the dividends they were releasing at the time. So yep. um, that's they're not in anyone's good books at the moment, I wouldn't imagine. But I, I will shift, swiftly move on because I realise we're 14 minutes in. Uh, spending, uh, NHS budget is protected and increased by 3.3% in each of the next two years. Years. Now, this again is a nice thing, but it's uh, it's actually a real times cut because the NHS budget is over 100%, inflation's at over 10.1%, so you would need at least 10 billion to uh, not make it a real times cut, but never mind. In 2023 and 2024, the government will invest an extra 2.2 billion in schools. Government will uh, proceed with a new nuclear power plant at Sizewell C. I think this one will be pretty much universally nodded as a good idea from all of us. No cuts on any capital budgets. Uh, rail projects going ahead. Northern Powerhouse Rail, HS2, East West Rail, all going ahead. East West Rail, I think, are just going to get a diesel train out of this, but never mind. Um, overseas aid budget to remain at 0.5% instead of the 0.7% that we uh, were, were aiming for. But uh, that's not a massive issue, I don't think. So a few things that they've got to mention they're still not adding that onto uh, school fees despite discovering that that would raise 1.6 billion uh, in tax uh, which is an interesting one 
the 23% increase in fuel duty is still going ahead in 2023. Don't know why they didn't mention that one. Uh, they're disbanding the COVID fraud recovery team with £4.7 billion still outstanding to be collected. No changes to non-DOM tax status. Rachel Reeve said that was probably the only one that Rishi wouldn't sign off. Uh, cap on bankers' bonuses uh, is still being removed. Uh, business tax is obviously going up from 19% to 25%. So I think that was uh, quite an interesting statement. I mean, I feel like I've come away with it with a few legs and an arm missing. Um, how about you guys? I think I've mostly come away from it confused, to be honest with you. Um, Steve, the way I tend to think about these things is trying to think well what do i think this thing is supposed to be doing and how likely do i think it is to achieve that and obviously there's two purposes to any um budget or statement or anything um and one of those purposes is always get this party elected uh, basically at the next election or try and prepare to get this party elected at the next election but i'm not particularly interested in that but um the question is what do i think it's supposed to be doing for kind of me as a citizen of the uk as an investor as a, someone who kind of makes and keeps their money here and i think it's i'm struggling to see how it's going to do the things that it says it is so the goals were stability public services and growth and of those i think i'm struggling to get past more than about one out of three at best so uh, growth, I think this is going to be a real struggle. Uh, I, this looks to me like it's going to be something that doesn't particularly go for growth. I'm not saying it should have been uh, something that went for growth. The mini budget thing was supposed to be a growth thing. Nobody liked that. So maybe we're not all about going all out for growth here. Maybe stability is more important. But I think stability is kind of still to be seen. Uh, so question mark on stability, cross on growth. Public services, um, maybe. I'm not sure about that. There are a few things there that seem sort of vaguely encouraging to me, but not a tremendous amount. So my sense is that bringing down uh, one tax threshold and leaving another one where it is, the headline I saw from that, that was kind of the first thing you mentioned and the, the big headline thing that everyone's always interested in in autumn statements and so on. Um, was millions to pay more tax, presumably millions to get pay rises because that's what would cause them to pay more tax unless they're getting suckered into a higher rates uh, bracket. And if you're getting suckered into a higher rate bracket at 125,000 rather than 150,000, I don't really mind that uh, for pension. you, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, deal with it like that. Um, but I wasn't as concerned about the kind of millions to pay more in tax thing. I'm a bit more worried about people's energy bills, though, um, and caps coming off those. Jeremy Hunt made a point about um, UK needing to achieve energy independence here, uh, whilst also doing his very best to drive away the kind of oil companies that might be useful for that in the short term. So I sort of worry about the energy situation there. I worry about energy prices going higher, and I worry about the government having to do something about it. Overall, I thought this was a budget that I'm not sure what it achieves practically, other than maybe getting some people off the backs of the Conservatives at the moment who are reeling. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, to a point, this is an attempt to drive down inflation a little bit as well. With the high, I think there's a third, no, I think there's, I know you're going you're gonna to go, mm, what is he talking about? I think there's possibly here a third possible way of controlling interest rates, not just by raising rates and not just by curbing government uh, bond rates, uh, bond buying, but also why not stop people from having money? in a sense you know over the next few years maybe we can slow down people's spending because they are very scared of having um 
uh, of having no money, basically. So they're going to slow down their spending in general. Uh, but what I what I was con- concerned about is echoing the same thing: is they they did turn to trying to get into this uh, energy drive system and and get themselves well, try to get England and the UK as more energy independent. And one, the main way we're going to do that is through renewables. And we're clearly in some of the places here, electric cars and vans and motorcycles to pay tax now. We're, we're, we're sort of discouraging that. We're, just, we're discovering, discouraging that sort of green uh, approach at the moment, which is probably where the likely place where in the future we, we're going to develop our energy independence. But obviously, and the same in the same way you've said it already i think um that we're, we're pissing off the oil companies at the same time well if you want to be if you want to bring inflation down you want a good way of stopping inflation ever running as rampant as it has creating your own energy is a fantastic way of doing it and being in control of your own prices removing yourself in the international market so you're not at the whims of you know russia deciding to attack ukraine or uh, america deciding to hang on to billions of bar- barrels of oil to to, you know, or even OPEC choosing to not bother making anything this because this week because oil's not $100 a barrel. If you want to get away from all of that, the way to do it is to encourage green energy investment in the in the UK. And uh, they say they're trying to do that, but there's you know there's no more onshore wind farms. They don't like onshore wind farms. Uh, there's no onshore solar farms that have been approved uh, under this recent Tory government as well. So uh, there's all of those problems. The, the other thing is that the UK tax burden now is 36.3% of GDP. That's the highest it's been since the Second World War. So, um, you know, we're essentially on a wartime budget here for um, not war economy. Do you know what I mean? We're not, we're not at war. Yeah. So I think this will be very difficult for people to bear. I think this is probably the final nail in the coffin for the the Tory party. If if they win the next election, I will be very surprised. Something has got to go catastrophically wrong for Labour here to lose this. And they're very capable of doing that. Let me just point that out. They're very capable of of absolutely messing this up. But irony for me, I've got a little bit for you, Paul. Three months ago, Tory MPs were cheering an essential 50 billion tax cuts package. And today they were cheering a 60 billion essential again package of tax rises and spending cuts. Are they the biggest hypocrites in the world? It's mad, isn't it? It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Just it's it's like it's it's cheerleader mentality, isn't it? It's, or, or what's um, the Garmlich effect, which is the effect that if you get enough girls screaming for a male pop star, everybody would just start buying their uh, their records basically and this is similar garment effect all you're doing is you're releasing any old policy that sorts you out at the same time and if you can have enough people clapping i've got a, i've got an image up here of uh, uh rishi sunak and everyone tapping Jer- uh, jeremy hunt on the shoulders uh, and stuff and i'm going that's what's been released out there that's the picture that they've released everyone is happy and we're trying to give this image of everyone being happy about the budget and if you can do that and you can get enough could you you try to get the other conservatives on board at this point to generate a unified party if you've got loads and loads of people like clapping jeremy hunt you're going to get a few more people towing the line, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's called the Garmic effect, and that's what that's what you're seeing. It doesn't matter what the policy is; just get as many people clapping it as you can, and you'll get more followers. Bo Burnham has a very good version, uh, a very good song uh, of that effect called "Repeat Stuff." 
if somebody's bored. That's well oh, worth I checking to, out. I'll, I'll have a look at that. I, got, I think I got it from South Park. Or The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> what are we on next? Uh, so next I have uh, a little bit of an update on... Uh, well, we haven't talked about it at all, to be honest, and we probably should have done. Okay. Uh, but this one's about FTX. So um, I don't want to bore you with the details. I'm sure people have heard ad nauseum what's happened there. Essentially, FTX has collapsed. Um, and uh, I've just got some of the... I, I want to call it the fun stuff. Uh, I think if we can't laugh at stuff like this, I don't know what we can laugh at. Um, but here's some of the fallout and some of the interesting things that you probably might not have heard. Um, so FTX has a new CEO. He's called John Ray the Third. He's American, if you if you didn't believe that um, from the name. Uh, he was the, ironically, he was the administrator who sorted out the Enron fallout. So uh, the irony there is, is painful. Um, <laughs> yeah, his opening quote was, Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as has occurred here. So that was wow. interesting. Um, a few other things I've seen. Uh, so SBF, as we'll call him, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, he said he has endeavoured to get customer funds back. Uh, unfortunately, he's been fired from his role as CEO CEO's FTX, and the administrator, uh, I keen to remind you, that he has absolutely no say in the matter. Hilariously, uh, they've reported an $8 billion hole in their Excel spreadsheet. I mean, sorry, balance sheet. Uh, quite how Mr. Bankman-Fried thinks he's going to raise $8 billion, uh, in which nearly all of it is going to satisfy malpractice, is beyond me. Um, but he thinks it's really, really funny. I think it'll be really, really funny when he's yeah. in jail. Uh, so, mm -hmm. look, here's some of the crazy shit they got up to. This is courtesy of Grit Capital. Um, Genevieve is a fantastic writer. I'd urge you to sign up. But here's the top ten things that we have uh, spotted. So... Uh, debtors did not have the type of disbursement controls that I believe are appropriate for a business enterprise. For example, employees of the FTX group submitted payment requests via chat platforms where a disparate group of supervisors approved disbursements by responding with a personalised emoji. <laughs> so there was related party loans receivable of $4.1 billion at Alameda Research Consolidated, consisted primarily of a loan by Euclid Way Limited to Paper Bed Inc., a debtor of $2.3 billion, and three loans by Alameda Research Limited, one to Mr. Bankman Freed of $1 billion, one to Mr. Singh of $543 million, and one to Ryan Salami, an interesting name, of $55 million. Do you know what they did with this money? They bought houses with it. Mm. Uh, so That's... very few records were kept uh, most decisions in the company were made over chat and unfortunately for the administrator the message is auto-deleted after 30 days so they have no way of uh, tracing any company decision um, so FTX was a company valued at $32 billion it never had a board meeting and neither did any of its subsidiaries and there are no records of them happening at any of the 160 companies uh, that he founded um, number five, FTX had no cash management system. So management had zero idea how much cash was on hand at any given time or even where they were keeping their cash. So the administrator said, the FTX group did not maintain centralized control of its cash. Cash management procedural failures included the absence of an accurate list of bank accounts and account signatories, as well as insufficient attention to the credit worthiness of its banking partners. Um, but even worse than this, 
FTX weren't keeping proper records of who was employed. Uh, the administrator said the FTX approach to human resources combined employees of various entities and contractors with unclear records with and lines of responsibility. At this time, the debtors have been unable to prepare a complete list of who actually worked for the FTX group as of the petition date or what the terms of their employment were. Repeated attempts to locate certain presumed employees to confirm their status have been unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've already gone over this one this is corporate funds were used to buy real estate they basically bought a ton of real estate in the Bahamas uh, with loans from the company which ended up to be ended up being clients funds um, so number eight crypto deposited by customers wasn't even recorded on the balance sheet presumably all crypto assets just went into one central slush fund and were used for whatever this is <laughs> this is the administrator. Uh, so the filing makes clear that Sam Bankman-Fried does not speak for the company and his erratic and misleading public statements should not be regard uh, not should be disregarded. Sorry. Here he says, finally and critically, the debtors have made clear to employees and the public that Mr. Bankman-Fried is not employed by the debtors and does not speak for them. Mr. Bankman-Fried, currently residing in the Bahamas continues to make erratic and misleading public statements. Mr. Bankman-Fried, whose connections and financial holdings in the Bahamas remain unclear to me, recently stated to a reporter on Twitter, F regulators, they make everything worse, and suggested the next step for him was to win a jurisdictional battle versus the Delaware County Court. <laughs> so that's the fallout of uh, the uh, FTX things. They were the interesting bits I found in the report. Obviously, uh, very sorry for anybody who's lost money in this. I don't think there was any way of seeing this happening. Um, but no. I wanted to have a broader discussion about the YouTube creators that publish this. So Millennial Money have deleted their channel. Uh, they couldn't take the flack anymore. They, uh, they apparently were taking up to £50,000 a video for promoting FTX. Joseph Carlson was another. He said he only published the, uh, he was only pushing the stock version of it. Whether you believe that or not is uh, is up to you. I watched the JKR video where he called them all out on it, uh, basically saying that, you know, this was their fault. Do you think it's their fault? Um, no, to a point. Um, you're right. I don't think they could see it coming. But I do think that... I have a very strict rule that if I'm going to advertise anything, which I can barely do, um, I I have to be using the product, right? That's that's my that's that's the thing. Is like I would I would only say something is good or useful if I was actually using it, and these these people clearly aren't using it, right? They 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 clearly aren't. I I worry about eToro. Because I know I've pushed a lot of people onto eToro, or at least I've mentioned eToro at all. And I'm still buying crypto on eToro every single month. I put like 100 quid in and um, buying Ethereum. So I haven't strayed from that in, in any way. But they spent a lot of money on advertising to people and things like that. So I wonder if, you know, that's a private company as well in Israel. I wonder what its debt profile is like. I don't know if that thing is doing well or not. And, and that does worry me as well. So I've, I've got very personal feelings on that as well. But if you're not fucking using it, if you, or if you don't know how it works, then why the fuck, you know, why are you, why are you advertising it? And that, that's what I don't, I, I didn't get. That, that Andre Jick was, was brilliant a few years ago. He had real videos that were, that, that were really important and they, and they taught you a lot about the basics of personal finance. But now it's just a crypto 
shilling sort of channel and, and you just kind of like I, I haven't watched it in ages and um you, you you're just looking at adverts basically and you, and you can't tell that's the that's the weird thing is you can't you can't tell that this entire video that he's putting out is an advert for a, a crypto company until right at the end when you realize oh sh- you know, I've, I've just I've just spent twelve minutes on someone trying to tell me that they're not going to buy the coin themselves, but they 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 think it's pretty good and it could a hundred x. And there's millions of videos out there like that. And uh, I feel like Joe, Joseph Carson's been caught a bit short there. He did say that he thought that company was very solid and it was one of the more solid ones out there. Um, uh, he didn't know that, obviously. And that's the problem, right? He 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 said something there that he didn't know for sure, and that's quite quite interesting uh, to me as well. Um, you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful. And there's a lot of people banking on that. I don't know how many people have lost money. I don't know how much money Joseph Carson's made from that, but it must be fucking loads. I don't quite have Paul's moral compass here. I absolutely would advertise a product I didn't use, but I do have his similar thought of thinking that if I was going to advertise it, I would have to think it could be genuinely useful to somebody. That person may not be me necessarily. Um, And for $50,000, I'll write you a rap that will last the whole of the next podcast. it does strike me as kind of appropriate that uh, F regulators, they make everything worse. That's kind of as far as I can tell the slogan for crypto uh, generally across the board or from what I I, ha- I perceive of this sort of thing. I'm not a massive fan of the crypto space. I don't know vast amounts of it. I think I'm a little bit wary of the people who are kind of, as always, I'm more wary of the people who are in my camp but overconfident than the people who are on the other side of these things. So I'm not about to argue that crypto doesn't have a use or anything like that. Um, Buffett, Charlie Munger have both thought this was a a kind of easy place for fraud to kind of um, manifest itself. Great for kidnappers. Great for kidnappers. (laughs) Okay, it's clearly the case that fraud is highly possible through here, uh, or at least has been until very recently. I wouldn't get too carried away with my own greatness if I was Buffett and Munger here. Wells Fargo is a place that's seen an awful lot of fraud, but I don't think that means we should close down banks because they're all great for uh, defrauding people particularly. I was trying to think about Steve's thought of whether I thought this was more obvious than, say, I was actually thinking in my head of Wirecard as a a good example of a fraud Mm. that I didn't see coming. And to be honest, don't really hold anyone on the kind of uh, investor side, the kind of retail investor side anyway, responsible for not seeing coming. Uh, To be honest, Mm -hmm. I don't know how you would know that kind of thing. That's why accounts are audited and why you have people do it. Um, And I genuinely am not too sure, to be honest. You'd need to think a lot more about crypto than I did to think this was an obvious fraud. Um, so I'm I'm kind of indifferent as to whether I think this was particularly obvious. I think the the sort of parting comment for me on it would be well, just just a couple of things really. They have over a million customers, Paul, so they've got a million um, people at the moment trying to get it. It's also a class action against Larry David, Steph Curry, and uh, Giselle, and her husband whose name escapes me. Tom Brady. Uh, all, Tom Brady, of course, it is. They're they, getting a they divorce, by the way. Oh, well, they all have a class action against them to go. So there'll be a few more days in court for them. Um, but yeah, so my, my, my part in thought on this is essentially that, um, I don't think anybody could have seen this coming. Bank Mafrid had just been on the front cover of Forbes as the coolest man in the world or something. Coolest billionaire, the most altruistic billionaire ever and what have you. And, um, 
I mean, you, you went to know he was running this incestuous company where uh, the only reason he was hiring CEOs for some of them was that he was dating them or trying to date them. Um, you just weren't going to know that was that was that was going to happen. The, the media reports around, and the media reports continue to be really bad. I don't know if you saw the New York Times; it was like this little fluff piece they've put out where they asked him if he was getting enough sleep. Like he's just taken billions of pounds away from people, and the New York Times are worried about this guy's sleep. Like <laughs> I'd be worried about, like you know. He, Get not get a crossbow bolt in the back of my head, but um, yeah, I just think there's no way you could have seen this coming. It's a private company; you had no access to their finances. On the face of it, it looked like this strong company was buying up all of these failing crypto companies. But um, the, the the truth of it was, I mean, in hindsight, you've got to think to yourself, well, where did all this money come from? I mean, I don't know whether you saw the reports from Sequoia, Sequoia Capital. They've taken their report down of him now where he was talking about buying bananas on um, FTX.com and they thought he was the greatest founder ever. And uh, they found out at the end of the interview, he'd been sat playing League of Legends and not actually like looking at his yeah. presentations as he made it to them. And they, they loved him so much, Steve. You'll love this. They did a meme round for him. 420.69 million from 669 investors, I think it was. Uh, <laughs> just, I mean, it's just forget about this free capital environment that we've just been in. If, if you needed to explain anything to anybody about this sort of period of zero interest rates, quantitative easing, too much money in the market, you would just say, just read this. Just read this yeah, little thing. But incredible. unfortunately, Sequoia have, uh, have uh, deleted it as they have deleted the uh, the amount that that investment was worth from their balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So I guess we're talking about 13S next, are we? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Monday was the deadline for reporting 13F, so accordingly all the interesting people that I uh, like to follow reported their holdings for the end of the last quarter on Monday. Um, top of my list, as always, is kind of Berkshire Hathaway. There's some stuff coming in, some stuff going out. Most of it's fairly inconsequential, but the stuff that was bought was Occidental, Paramount Global, Restoration Hardware, Salonese, Chevron, Taiwan Semiconductor, Louisiana Pacific, and Jefferies. The stuff that went out was Kroger General Motors, Activision Blizzard, BMY Mellon, US Bank Corp, and Store Capital in its entirety, that last one. Um, there are two things that kind of stuck out, I guess. One that stuck out to everybody else, and one that stuck out to me. Uh, the one that stuck out to everybody else was this $4 billion investment in Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, because semiconductors are a kind of interesting space at the moment. It's quite a sizable investment in anything $4 billion to kind of get going with, uh, and it's a new one in the, the Buffett portfolio. Um, my initial reaction was that this is highly off-brand because it's not a US company, uh, and Buffett is always insistent on betting on America and so on. But once you get past that, as Steve was saying, it starts to look a bit more like a straightforward kind of Berkshire buy, Steve. It, yeah, it's a it's a Buffett stock. Uh, it's just not it's just not an American company. I would assume because I think you know Buffett knows a lot about Apple. Uh, I know he shied away from tech stocks for a really really long period of time, but I would imagine as he's learned more and more about Apple, as he's really really dug deep in them, he's probably learned how important Taiwan Semiconductor is to Apple, uh, which has mm. maybe piqued his interest in the in the stock. I mean, he's moved it in. It's it must be nearly ten. Is it tenth place, Steve? Now that's that's quite a big holding just to jump in and and. Uh, uh, and, and stick it straight in there. So, I mean, I think we would all here buy Taiwan Semiconductor if it wasn't in Taiwan. I don't think any of us at the price it is today would have an issue with sticking it in our portfolio and, and holding it long term. It's just that that threat mm -hmm. of China is, is just almost always knocking on the door. Paul? 
certainly. Um, how? Uh, sorry to plug S- ASML again, but how long until he dives that little bit further and realise how important ASML is to Taiwan Semiconductor? You know, that was my first thought on this one. Um, with TSMC, yeah. I don't think we can hold it in the ISA, can we? So that's a that's a big problem for us if we really wanted it. And um, but uh, I didn't realise he got rid of Activision. Has he got fully got rid of, rid of Activision now? No, no, sorry. Part of Go Activision uh, got sold down. Sorry. All oh, right. Okay. So that might. Uh, give you an indication of what the strength of that deal might be unless he's uh, um, something's going on there interesting uh, what do you think of the whole portfolio is it just the TMC thing that's really stood out there on the Activision thing for a moment I mean it's still a bigger holding than um, TSMC which kind of indicates to me that it's probably not his bit of the thing that got sold so it's either Todd or Ted who needs money to buy stuff and is uh, seen something falling somewhere on that list of things that I mentioned uh, and decided to shunt out some Activision to make way for it. Taiwan Semi it's is kind of... a lot of sales at a loss, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's a lot of sales at a loss. Yeah. That portfolio is... is down quite a bit. I mean, the company reported a net loss in their last quarter, mostly because they have to report unrealized gains and losses in the stock portfolio, and with stocks down, that weighed on uh, higher operating earnings. So it's probably not something to worry about if you don't plan on selling the stocks, which I don't think they do in general. Um, But a couple of thoughts then quickly from me. Taiwan Semi is a manufacturer, I guess, and Buffett does like a manufacturing um, company, I guess, especially one with a big old moat like they have and their position kind of relative to Intel, which is attempting to develop itself quite quickly, is... Uh, a fairly strong one, I think. I mean, Intel's spending an awful lot to catch up. I'll point out very quickly one of the other things I saw in a 13F that we won't go into is Seth Klarman has dumped all of his Intel stock. Uh, That was his biggest holding at the start of 2021, uh, and he's now got rid of it entirely. And he is like value investing chief nerd uh, from what I see of him. He Mm. is uh, highly academic, highly intellectually minded, highly big on the distinction between investing and speculation, all that kind of thing. His book is a complicated, dense kind of thing that reads like an academic tome, which is what it is. Costs about a million pounds, so more or less the same value as all of Intel. Uh, but he's got rid of all his Intel stock, uh, from what I can see of it. And that's that struck me as interesting at a time that Buffett and Berkshire are getting into Taiwan Semi. But Taiwan Semi wasn't really what caught my eye here. The one that caught my eye was Chevron. So... The way I increasingly think about the um, Berkshire portfolio is there's an awful lot going on that doesn't really matter uh, very much because it's such a massively top-heavy portfolio one way and it's about 75% in sort of maybe eight or so or five or so stocks, I think. So anything going on in that top five stocks is interesting and significant and anything going on outside it is probably fairly small potatoes. There's another about 40 or so stocks that make up the remaining 25% so nothing huge going on there. Chevron's now made its way up to third uh, in this kind of thing and that puts it like bigger than stuff like Coke and American Express and Mm. Kraft Heinz and all those things I associate as being kind of quintessentially Buffett things. And that means that there's an awful lot in uh, Chevron for Berkshire here. It's now got a 3% dividend yield, a PE of around 10 or so. Its break-even price for oil is about $50 a barrel. Uh, Price is currently around 85 for what it's worth. Um, It kind of got me wondering whether I should think about this as a stock. I then concluded I shouldn't, but... Um, that's getting to be a significant thing for someone who's a Berkshire Hathaway uh, shareholder. 
our top-heavy portfolio has got Chevron quite near the top of it now. Interesting as well, though, mm. Steve, is that um, he's now up to over 20% ownership of Oxy, mm-hmm. and he's now just under 10% ownership of Chevron as well, which makes you think, I wonder if he is planning a takeover of Oxy at some point, uh, getting towards 20% and constantly building that position. I mean, he has bigger positions in stuff. Like, let's not say that this is an automatic indicator. He's got bigger positions in things like Kraft Times is nearly at 30%, but... This Oxy state just keeps going up and up and up, and it's you know it's a sixty billion dollar company, but he's got that kind of cash hanging around for the right kind of company, and uh, you know Oxy being bolted onto Berkshire Hathaway Energy would not be a bad thing for him to sort of stick under that sort of umbrella. I, I wonder if we could see him uh, push this one even further. People keep telling me that's not going to happen, and I don't really know why, because their case never really convinces me very much. They have the cash to do it. With the stake they currently have, Occidental, their share of Occidental's earnings go through the income statement, rather than just the dividends that they uh, get from them. And Occidental has a massive carbon capture uh, project going on, which is its kind of interesting angle, plus a strong presence in the Permian Basin. And if you're worried about oil uh, security going forward, that's probably quite an important thing. So does Chevron for what it's worth as well. So, I mean, both of those are, in net terms, a big bet on the Permian Basin and the oil coming out of the Permian Basin and the price of that oil coming out of the Permian Basin. I mean, I don't know what I think the price of oil is going to do for what it's worth. I think the Russia-Ukraine situation resolves itself one way or another and the price settles down a bit. Uh, When that happens, I don't know. Where it settles to, I don't know. Um, And where it will go in between, I don't know. Which means that my kind of instinct here is to, uh, if I wanted to try and own Chevron or Oxy, I would just buy Berkshire and let Buffett do it for me, I think, because I suspect he knows more (laughs) about oil than I do. Makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an odd one. I think he's still waiting. I think he's still waiting for that, uh, the world the interest rates are like gravity to stocks thing. I don't think he's gone further. I don't think he's buying uh, 100% of any company right now. I think he's still waiting for the elephant gun to get released. I think he's waiting for P's and the S&P 500 to hit 14, 12. I think this guy has a lot of patience. To take all the crap that he took through 2020 and 2022 to sit on what is it, 150-odd billion in cash now? Um, ah, he's, what's, a, what's a few more months? What are you going to miss? Like, I, it's, uh, I think he's still going to wait for that recession ticker to, to, to lock in and get some bigger deals. It might be Oxy. It might be the rest of Oxy, you know. But uh, he's certainly catching energy companies at quite high prices at this point, don't you think? Uh, he's catching oil companies with the oil price quite high. I guess he's betting it's going to yeah. stay there for a bit. Um, and that's roughly how that works out. I mean, Chevron does have kind of renewable stuff and things that are not the Permian Basin, and that's where growth is meant to come from and so on. It's way beyond my capacity to try and work out here. But in net terms, it comes down to where oil is. Their break-even price is 50 Will it stay above that? Yes. Will it stay enough above that to justify its current price? Which, as you say, Paul, is... It's fairly punchy here. I mean, it's trading on a low PE, but that's because oil prices have been through the roof lately. They've been north of 100 or so. So you're factoring in high earnings. It's 10 times high earnings, basically, is what you're, you're getting at there. Dividend yield is now 3%. It's not so long ago that we were in the pandemic and it was closer to 9 uh, from what I remember of it. And I remember thinking at the time people owning oil stocks should have kept them. And I would have come off well if I'd been following my own advice there. 
you've got classic strategy though right a classic strategy of mm-hmm. going against the grain here and what what warren buffett and china munger are known for and this one's paid off you've got to remember the america's just released 715 million barrels of oil into uh into the economy to try and bring their own uh, their own inflation and petrol prices down um so at some point you would assume that america wants to refill those uh those reserves so there's going to be a net buyer in the market for at least 715 million uh, barrels over the next period of time so that should add uh, you know a nice buyer into the market to hold up oil prices at least for the sort of medium term so um i don't think it's a bad move at all yeah it depends where this oil price goes remember uh, they can add as much buying pressure as they want if opec chooses to get the dollar barrel price down they can do it because aramco can make profit mm-hmm. on a on a barrel of oil at about 20 dollars. so uh yeah, yeah they're in they're, they're, there's no they, they don't need it to be high mm-hmm. absolutely shall i do terry smith let's have a look at terry okay so fun smith they reported that their uh their fund size actually got to 22.1 billion which was a lot bigger than i thought it was i didn't realize fun smith had got so big um but the headlines here are that they've made big reductions in uh, their payment firms. So they had uh, PayPal Holdings, they had Paycom Software, and they also had accounting group uh, into it. Uh, and they also made some reductions in cybersecurity firm Qualsys and engineering firm Ansys as well. So big move. He dumped over 4 million shares of PayPal. It was about 40% of his investment. Uh, he dumped about 675,000 shares of Intuit, which was about 30% of his investment in them. I'd estimate he was probably down 50% and 30% on those two positions. So it's a, a feral, feral dump. Uh, he's trimmed Microsoft a little bit, but he actually bought shares of Apple, which was a company he previously said that he didn't really understand. He bought Otis, the lift maker, I guess is what we would call them. Mm-hmm. IDEX were, and Edwards Life Sciences, which I think are both sort of lab slash life sciences companies off the top of my head. Uh, most notably to me, uh, he didn't add anything to Meta, which has dropped out of his top 10 positions, I would assume mainly because it's down 60% this year. Uh, he has added to Amazon, to Google and Adobe. These are all positions he bought earlier in the year. It's not a jumpy out uh, kind of, not a lot of action here, Steve. Nothing really jumping out at me, but it, does the Meta thing surprise you? It's not my intention to be deliberately obtuse when it comes to uh, Terry Smith, but I often come off that kind of way. But the Meta thing, I don't want to say it's just because Meta's earnings have dipped and therefore returns on invested capital have dipped and therefore it doesn't look as nice when it comes to kind of looking at the the numbers as they report themselves here and you have to dig a little bit deeper. But when I look at the Fundsmith kind of annual presentation thing, um, and people call this the UK's uh, Warren Buffett and so on, I tend to think to myself, it is very much about a pretty rigid approach of, look, I want this kind of returns on invested capital at this kind of price. Uh, so his idea, his plan is find great businesses, don't overpay, and then don't do anything. Meta no longer, I think, would come up in, I'm not saying he just uses a screener, but if you were screening uh, now, Meta is reporting low earnings uh, here. Earnings have been coming down and it looks to me like um, with margins getting pinched, returns on investor capital are lower at Meta. Maybe that's why. Mm. Yeah. Focusing on, because I'm glad you brought up the his three-point strategy, focusing on the do-nothing part of it. Um, he's not doing nothing, is he? He's cut PayPal and the other one at ridiculous 
lows, um, kind of going against his own strategy here and seems a little bit odd. Terry Smith has become very, very popular over the past couple of years just because he's got great returns. And is that a case of the fact that he now, you know, return on invested capital is the be all end all way of discovering uh, these amazing stocks that are going to outperform the market? Or is he just got kind of lucky over the past couple of years and he's bought some of the top top um fang stocks out there it's 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 odd but i don't that was the main thing that i picked up on in this day is that he's made sales and he's not supposed to right well it's it's hard to deny he's been a good investor over the last couple of decades there is a reason why he's he's pretty much regarded as the uk's best investor around at the moment which probably to the ire of uh, mr ackman um but his holdings will probably surprise you. I would say they're not common stocks that you see in 13Fs. I, I don't think they're, they're a mixture. Boring, boring, yeah, yeah. Boring, and, boring. and they are, really, when you think about it. I mean, he's got 10% of his portfolio in Microsoft, 65 in Philip Morris, 6% in Estee Lauder, 598 in Automatic Data Processing, and 56 in IDEX Labs. There is top five. They're all very pretty boring companies um maybe microsoft uh, has a little bit more excitement to it uh, more recently but um steve do you have anything on any of them a couple of quick things yeah but he sold part of his microsoft didn't he this time i thought that was one that i saw had been uh lowered only trimmed. slightly yeah only oh, trimmed. okay only trimmed um you pointed out the thing about apple uh and he said he was a thing he didn't really understand he's been brought round to some of those uh, stocks recently i saw he bought amazon in the last year or so having said previously that uh he took the view that he'd only be interested in aws if it was spun out from the uh e-commerce arm i'm not saying by the way that there's anything the matter with that at all anyone is allowed to kind of evolve their view uh, of something and change their mind about something and realize that they've learned something they didn't previously learn i think in many ways that's a sign of a good investor if you think the same thing for the entirety of your life that just shows that you never made any progress uh, so I don't mind at all uh, the idea that Terry Smith has come round to um, Apple or Amazon or whatever. I'd hate, by the way, for anyone to hold me to the views I had, even sort of 12 months ago. I continue to try and learn stuff and um, build on that thought here. So I'm interested in the fact that he's kind of adding to Apple. I mean, it sort of looks like it's, I think... Uh, someone's going to show that I'm wrong on this, but I have this idea that it's a fang that's held up best over this year, which means that relative to its uh, start of year price, it's the one that's the least cheap. Um, and that seems to be a, a kind of unusual thing to be doing in that situation. But um, it's up to him what he does, I guess. Well, he's long, he's long sort of compared them to Nokia, hasn't he? That was his prime argument, was that he likes companies that have loyal customers. So he likes to think that the companies that are in his portfolio, the customers to them are, are loyal. And his issue with Apple was always that, you know, everybody was loyal to Nokia until Apple came along. So who's not, who's to say that there won't be, you know, another company, the Solana phone that comes along and takes away all of, all of Apple's uh, market share, uh, just like it happened to Nokia. I think he must finally be able to see that Apple has created this ecosystem which almost has tendrils that traps you into it, the AirPods, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, well, everything. Everything in the ecosystem is sort of revolving around he, the iPhone he and has iPad. A very, he has a very... Um... He, he likes switching costs, so that might have been something that's 
he, he mentioned switching costs a lot in his, when he talks about moats. So I think you might find that, yeah, he has sort of discovered that on Steve's point there. Uh, it's only 4.5, Apple is only 4.53% down on in the past year, and all of the other fangs must be at least 30% down at this point. Um, so there you go. Switching costs and uh, loyal customers and stuff. He owns Church and Dwight. Is it that hard to switch from Church and Dwight? That's a different reasoning. He's got much, much more different reasoning for that, hasn't he? It's all about that's all about growing into emerging markets, I guess. Mm. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. It, it, he has definitely mentioned the switching cost, and like you say, he's seen the moat there. I think he might have seen something like that in Facebook initially, but I think he was talking about return on invested capital for that bit as well. He, he sticks on this return on invested capital a lot, and, with, and it's, I don't think it's wrong. You know, I think he's he's got proof and he's got backdated proof of that being very positive. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I, he's learning and everything like that. I just. I'm just looking at the do nothing bit, and I keep coming back to that. And he's done a lot. It hasn't been very boring. This 13F, it's been quite active in both the selling and the buying. Mm. So uh, I'm wondering how how much we do stick to these rules. We talk about these rules that we all have, and how how long do we stick to them? And, and should we just follow it blindly? I guess. I've been terrible uh, at doing nothing for what it's worth. I set out the start of this year to try and do less and I have basically failed. It's been a choppy year, right? Which makes it really hard to just sort of sit there and do nothing rather than thinking, look at that thing go. I'm going to sell everything and buy that thing quite a lot. But um, we've crossed the hour mark. So if we're happy leaving things there, we can sign ourselves off. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Do leave us a comment. Do like our video. Do subscribe to our channel and tell everyone else to do so. Or better yet than leaving us a comment, please do leave us a nice voice note uh, with a question in because we'd love to hear some of those and we'd love to play them on the show and talk about them as well as talking about all the other fascinating things that we have going on in our lives, our investing and our finances.